If your student is going to live on campus, they will need twin extra long sheets. The first thing people get wrong. The first thing people get freaked out about. The majority of students who enroll in college don't graduate in four years. Is my kid going to make friends? Are they going to fit in? Are they going to find their people at college? Are they going to fail a class? Between Beth and I, we have worked in higher education for 50 years. We really think that there's some opportunity for some great dialogue. From the Pod 617 studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's Twin XL. Now here's your hosts, Laura DeVoe and Beth Grampetro. Good morning. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Everyone. Yay. Nice to, nice to see you. <laughs> it is. It's nice to see everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. On screens, I, which is I know on screens, how we do this now, which is our lives, right? Yeah. So I was, I was. It's nice to see Dave. It's nice to see Beth. Uh, we do have a guest, which we'll introduce in a second. So it's nice to see him as well. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm craving going outside and seeing people in person. But we know that that's uh, a long time down the road. Uh, besides humanity, what are you craving right now, Beth? You have a go-to um, quarantine snack. <laughs> I, Mine is gin. <laughs> I mean, there are categories of go-to quarantine snack. Um, we've actually had in my house, every time my husband goes to the grocery store, he comes home with some kind of packaged snack cake. And yeah. two trips ago, it was Swiss rolls, which are great. Oh, like, oh, really better Swiss than roll. I remembered. But this last time, it was ringdings, and they're not quite... They're not quite there. They're not no, as good no. as the Swiss, Swiss roll. rolls. Are, yeah, Swiss rolls are, are definitely a superior snack cake. Um, when I was in college, <laughs> when I was in college, we had an intramural uh, softball team and uh, we were called the Little Debbies. I love that. That's Hand so God. good. <laughs> All right. And, and okay. And a true story, Sean Grandy, who is the radio play-by-play announcer for the Boston Celtics was our co-captain for the Little Debbies. So he will be the first one to say that he's had a long, sordid history with blonde women. Does he speak of this part of his checkered past ever? Or is this a yeah, secret that we are like no, revealing? He lives, he, he lives it. And his, his wife, Dana Jacobson, who is uh, a, a wonderful person, uh, is fully aware of, uh, this this moment in his life so wasn't there a wedding officiated by mick foley no um not mick foley their wedding their their wedding was mick foley was at their wedding okay i knew he was just happened (laughs) and i and it was a it was a friend who officiated and cedric maxwell was the best man it was like literally me and my husband sitting there going is that so it's not like like (laughs) Like, why are we invited to this wedding? We're uh, slobs. We have no, <laughs> we are not famous in any way. And then like, the, the sections, like, the, it was like bride, yeah, groom, or normal people. Yeah. You were just yes, in the back. It was, it was <laughs> Celtics. It was CBS morning show and schmucks, right? <laughs> like, that was literally <laughs> the three sections. All right. All right. Uh, so that was not what was planned on so uh yeah. we're just doing what so, we do best which is <laughs> digressing wildly go off on 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 but hi and, welcome yeah, to hey, twin xl 
everyone. Yes. Hope you're all well. I hope, we, well, we help, we hope everybody is well and everybody is healthy and taking care of their families and themselves and doing what you need to do uh, in our current reality. I refuse to call this the new normal. This is current reality. And, uh, you know, when it comes to colleges and universities, uh, it seems the trending topic is what the hell is going to happen in the fall? What's going to be our reality on campus uh, when California state system said, yeah, no, we're going to just be online. That was a wah, wah kind of statement to all of higher ed and saying, this is what we're doing. So I was uh, looking uh, at some of the articles. <laughs> I was waiting for Dave. Perfect. Because <laughs> we become a morning zoo show every once in a while. Like that's, that's what somebody just, into. somebody just lost a game on Price's Race. There we go. <laughs> I'm so happy right now. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, and so I was looking online and I have been stalking our guest for quite some time. <laughs> His name is Michael Horn. And I met him about two years. It'll be like two years ago this fall. I think uh, Boston Foundation had a panel discussion about the future of New England higher education. This is right after Mount Ida closed. And uh, Michael was one of the guests. And I was like, this guy's got his shit together. And so I said, I need to meet this guy. So uh, welcome, Michael. <laughs> Introduce yourself, please. Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks so much for having me. I, I hope you still feel the same way at the end of this podcast that I have my uh, shit together. But, uh, <laughs> uh but it's it's a pleasure to be with you with with you both. Uh, you know, I guess the brief on me is I've written a number of books on the future of education. I consult and work in the education uh, space with a number of colleges and universities, and uh, think a lot. Uh, my most recent book is called Choosing College: How to Help people make better learning decisions throughout their life and think a lot about how do we help students and families understand why they're going to school and then therefore what are the experiences that they need to have in that you know in, during those 4 years so that they graduate and that they get what they want out of it talk to me about uh you know you are really looking at what's happening with access. Uh, and one of the, uh, you, you're a regular contributor to Forbes. You're head of a strategy for the Entangled Group. What is that? Tell me what that is. Yeah, actually, well, we can probably break a little news on your show, though. The, the, uh, so, mm. so the Entangled Group uh, is an education venture studio that literally just got acquired uh, by Guild Education. Okay. So literally okay. uh, just happening. And uh, Guild Education, where I'll be a senior strategist, uh, basically helps connect adult learners uh, uh, who are working uh, at companies to education benefits from a variety of university partners on the Guild Education platform. Uh, but through Entangled, where, as you said, I was, uh, that's where we were doing direct consulting to a number of colleges and universities, basically saying, hey, the world has shifted from the industrial era in which many colleges and universities were created. We're in a knowledge economy now. Things are very different. How do we help you innovate? to be able to serve students, all students, uh, in, in this very new reality. And that was obviously before the current reality, to use your language, right. uh, uh, hit. Right. And then, frankly, a lot of demand for uh, our services and, and what Guild is doing also have just gone through the roof as people are trying to figure out how do we reposition ourselves uh, for this time. 
That's great. I'm I'm excited and I'm glad we're breaking some news. Uh, you know, so I, let's get into it a bit. Uh, there was an article this week in, uh, I think it was yesterday, actually, in the Inside Higher Education. And uh, it said that there's a Carnegie Dartlet survey of 2,800 high school seniors. Sur- survey was conducted in May, making it one of the most recent among many high school seniors. A major theme of those surveys has been student reluctance to consider it online models. Uh, 95% said they would honor commitments made to colleges uh, that plan to reopen in the fall with social distancing measures in place. But the survey also indicated that the later an institution announced its policy, the more apprehension students will have about it. Uh, when you hear that, what is what's kind of what is going through your head when you hear that? How yep. much anxiety is in the college process to begin with? And this is just amping that up to 11, if you will, right? It's literally just yeah. saying, we don't know what's going to happen. Everyone is sort of up in arms trying to figure it out. A lot of families' finances have crashed, we know. Uh, college finances have crashed. We don't know what the experience is actually going to be lo- like in the fall. Even if students come back in the fall, uh, many colleges are now saying, hey, we'll go till Thanksgiving, and then you won't come back actually to campus, and we'll, we'll avoid it then. Uh, but yeah. what if they have to do an evacuation effectively like they did this spring? Many schools got to benefit because it was during spring break, but then a lot of people left mm-hmm. their belongings on campus. There's so much uncertainty, and there already was so much anxiety around this process that I just think yeah. it's really stirring people's emotions and just lack of clarity. And so what I think you're hearing in that survey is we just want to know what's going on because the longer this stretches on, we feel like it's harder and harder to plan for this uh, Mm -hmm. in terms physically, financially, and so forth of, of what will actually happen. The flip side that I'll just quickly say is schools that are making announcements right now, in some ways it feels kind of false in the sense that right. we just don't know what the reality, I mean, the, like every day right now is a week, right? And so, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we just don't know what the reality is going to be. So I think schools are very much caught in this and some of them have postured and said, we'll absolutely be back on campus in the fall. They don't know that, you know, they were no. trying to get deposits in many cases from mm-hmm. students. And obviously, students would love the uh, classic college experience, but it's just very difficult right now to figure out what's going to happen. So related to that, Michael, can you say a little bit, as you've been looking at messaging that college and university leadership is putting out there, are there any other things you're noticing that you think are maybe contributing to the uncertainty or making things easier for parents and students, like highlights and lowlights of the messaging you've seen? Yeah, so I I think part of it is that... uh, students are looking for empathy and transparency right now from college leaders and, uh, and, and almost a range of scenarios. You know, if this happens, this is probably how we will react, right? If this is allowed, this is how we'll, we'll, we'll go forth. And I think they just want a window into the thinking that college leaders have right now. I think a lot of the games around we're moving deposit dates from May 1st to June 1st. And then a bunch of schools say, no, we're holding, you know, we're holding to the May 1st deposit date, right? And all of those games, it's not the fault of any one leader at a college, but the fact that there have been so many different disparate responses and people almost looking at the other one and saying, well, you know, they're going to move May 1st once it hits May 1. Like, don't worry about it. Uh, I just think all of that crosstalk has created a web of confusion. And so it's, it's, 
by and large, I think colleges and universities have done a pretty good job during this if you look at one of them, but it's sort of that web of them that I think creates a lot of the uh, confusion, if you will. Yeah, it was, you know, as people have been jockeying for position on this, it reminds me of when I was uh, a vice president for student affairs, I was, I was one of the people in charge of making decision if we're going to close for a snow day. Right. And I had a president at the time who was like, well, I'm not making a decision until I hear these three schools have made their decision, you know, and it's, it's, it's a more, it's times a million because of what we're dealing with right now. But it's, it's got that, it, I literally was having this moment in my kitchen the other day going, oh my God, I can't even imagine sitting around the table and having these conversations because, you know, it, the, the other reality is that college presidents are, are a very specific type of ego. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that, we can have a whole show on that. But anyway, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Michael Horn about uh, the gap year conversation. Hi, this is David Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network, hoping you are staying safe and healthy during this period of precaution over the coronavirus. It's difficult to connect with your clients and contacts in a period such as this. But here we continue to produce podcasts that allow you to connect with the people that you want to reach. You've got a rapt audience like never before. People are home, they're listening, and they're waiting to hear from you. We can create a professional podcast with a quick turnaround and do the whole thing remotely so you don't have to leave your home. Get in touch with us at pod617.com. All right. So we are back and uh, thank you so much. We are here with Michael Horn, who is our special guest uh, this week. And uh, we are talking about the fall and what that looks like for not only incoming students, but also for returning students uh, and what this COVID reality is shaping out to being. So uh, there's an uptick in chatter, Michael, about this idea of the gap year. And uh, your piece in Forbes on April 26, you write about students finding a year of purpose. Uh, and I really loved that. I love that word purpose. It has a lot of, it, it has an emotive quality. Um, can you expound on that and discuss how you, a uh, year of purpose can be something that is experienced by students regardless of their socioeconomic status? Uh, that's a, a big concern for me is that Oftentimes, those gap years were really for students who could afford it. Um, and we know that black and brown students in particular, this uh, COVID reality can also be a real, uh, it's going to be really hard on that population. So talk about, uh, you know, both a, a variety of populations, but talk about that gap year. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me back up a little bit and just say, you know, when we wrote Choosing College, one of the things that shocked me the most uh, was a central recommendation that came out of the research that many more students ought to be taking a gap year before they go to college so that they can build a purpose and a sense of why that goes beyond I'm going because others expect me to go. And our research was extraordinarily clear when you're going because primarily others' expectations, the moment struggles hit, and struggles always hit when you're in college. They, that's that's the mm -hmm. period of life you're in. They It will happen. If you have a deeper sense of why you're there, you tend to stick it through. If you don't, it's very easy to drop out at that point and incur debt without a degree. And that's sort of the, the danger zone you want to avoid in, in all this. And so, so my wife was super sarcastic. She said, I can't believe it took you a book to, to realize that a gap year could be valuable. But, you know, but the, a takeaway in it was we're not talking about just gallivanting and backpacking around Europe, right? That's not mm -hmm. what we meant by a gap year. We really mean 
taking a series of experiences that teach you more about yourself. And so that's mm. a, maybe some jobs, some apprenticeships, internships, a couple online courses, maybe a coding boot camp, things like that that are short sprints where you get to reflect at the end of each experience. And by the way, volunteering and travel could absolutely and should be a part of that as well, if possible. But the reality in my mind was, oh, you can actually be earning money during this period of time, which all of a sudden could open it up, right, to many students who traditionally haven't taken or had access to a gap year. The real critical thing, though, if you do that, is the student has to have a plan to learn and then go back to school at the end of the year. Because the challenge with gap yeah. years is that, uh, the, and the research is very clear about this, students who take a gap year independent of demographics do better if they go back to college. The challenge is if they never go back to college, right? If they just yeah. sort of spiral on uh, in a low-wage job where there's no upward trajectory at some point, okay? So now we fast forward into this moment where a lot of students are like, holy cow, I'm not going to that school if it's online and paying 50K, right? Or whatever it might mm -hmm, be. Mm -hmm. uh, I want the social experience and so forth. I actually think it's tre a tremendous opportunity because I suspect many of those students, regardless of demographics for a moment, actually lack the purpose and sense of why they're going to begin with. And so this is actually an incredible opportunity rather than to view it as a pause, to view it as a time to invest in yourself, to build that deeper why, if you will. And I would go one mm -hmm. step further to say, this is this generation's crucible in many ways, right? Like my, my generation was 9-11. Uh, we had World War II and the greatest generation. Like th there are these moments that hit when you're young that forge who you are and they destroy a lot of your reality. And For a lot of seniors mm -hmm. and a lot of students mm -hmm. in college right now, it has destroyed what they expected to have. Uh, but out of those challenges, it can test you and teach you who you are and allow you to contribute more to society. And so what I would urge mm -hmm. those who are not going to go back is to find ways to contribute to society, whether that's volunteering on the front lines of healthcare, whether that's volunteering in ways to support seniors who are disproportionately affected by this and so forth. Now, the question is how do low-income students or, as you said, disproportionately from black and brown communities who may not have access to these resources, I think it's challenging just to be blunt because there are going to be fewer jobs that pay right now yeah. because we've shed so many jobs, right? In the past, you could have even worked online and gotten paid to make it more affordable than going to school still. That might right. not be possible given the recession we're in right now. And so in my mind, it's incumbent upon all these gap year programs that have popped up to actually partner with colleges to leverage the financial aid budgets that they have to extend access to these experiences to many, many more students and for programs to connect to the jobs that are available so that students can be paid in certain circumstances uh, uh, for this and that we really are very intentional about making sure we curate this experience, not just for the upper crust that are gonna have the social connections to be able to land in a good place, but for all students. And that's gonna take very intentional effort, I think, um, from families, innovators, colleges themselves. Right, I, I like what you're saying. I think is especially when you're looking at the, 
the service piece. I think it was Senator Chris Coons has has co-authored mm-hmm. uh, some legislation about this idea of service, and that's really focused for people post-graduation. Uh, and right now, AmeriCorps, for those who don't know, uh, it allows for students uh, or for graduates to do a two, one to two years of service. They get paid a very low amount of money. It is basically a minimum wage. Uh, you come out of that with like, three or five thousand dollars uh you know that might go towards or i shouldn't count quote the money but it really doesn't help with your college debt load and what uh senator coons and others are are putting out there is that we should create something that is really a service core that takes that debt of college off the shoulders of those who put into those two years of service which i think is a great idea i'm um i am all over this, I've made about 100 phone calls in the last week to senators all over the country saying, this needs to happen. But right now, you've got kids who are trying to decide uh, whether they be rising seniors uh, going into their first year of college or people who may have just finished their freshman year. Um, and I think that freshman to sophomore gap, which is, as you know from your research, is that that is the big year where where people stop or they stagger, they st- stutter, stagger, whatever, and they don't actually keep the momentum going. Um, there's there's a lot of value in taking that year of purpose for some of these kids who might be having, you know, from a parenting standpoint, and this is a podcast for parents, there's nothing wrong right now in my mind, especially in light of our current reality to be able to say to a kid, look, I'm not happy learning online either. I work online right now and I, I can't tell you how many people I've had a conversation with who have said, you know what, as my work has moved to Zoom or because now I'm an essential person and I need to go to work every day and I have to wear a mask and I have to do all these things, I have really decided I don't like my job. I don't like what I do. I don't like my reality. It is okay for a parent to have that opportunity to have that conversation with their child to say, you know what, I'm having doubts myself. It is okay for you to have doubts. We can have doubts as a family and work our way through this. And taking a year to be of purpose in whatever that may look like, let's do that. Um, you know, uh, I am hopeful that. Um, there's COVID tracing and COVID uh, core type of opportunities for young people um, as well as older folks. Um, but, you know, Beth, as you're looking at all of this and you've been thinking about, you know, you you look at things through a health lens. You've been a wellness uh, person your entire life. Uh, you are probably looking at this through two sides of your brain. It's the public health side of your brain and then the health administrator side of your brain. And then there's the, the third side, that, which and, is and then your mom, like, yeah, like my kid out of the house. My side kid of needs brain. to go back to school this fall so that we all don't lose our minds. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other problem. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, oh boy. So, <laughs> so yes, I think, and this actually will kind of lead into another question that we have for Michael, but you know, we talked earlier about um, the many students, both, 
new, you know, folks who are graduating high school seniors and also returning students in various surveys and articles I've read are all talking about this reluctance to return in the fall or to start in the fall if it's an online situation completely. Understandable. It's not what people signed up for. It's not what they were expecting. Um, We are all feeling that about at least some part of our lives right now, whether it is our jobs or social things or whatever. I do think I, I appreciate like the conversation we're having about the sort of pitfall of if you take that year off and don't go back or don't have a way to use it um, effectively, how it maybe is not the best choice. But I think what's going to have to happen, and this is for everyone, this is happening already for the institutions as they're trying to make choices about what they're going to do in the fall. Um, and as someone who is part of the conversation at the institution where I work, I can tell you it is extremely complicated. <laughs> um So we're having complicated conversations and families are going to have to have complicated conversations. And the problem is that no one can tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are going to be people telling you what to do. The government, like your governor in whatever state you're in, your mayor, like all these people are going to say in certain places, you can do this, you cannot do this. There are going to be regulations, there are going to be rules, which hopefully are based on the public health data that we have. However, at a certain point, Choices have to be made by individuals and families about what is the best thing for them and what is the risk they are willing to take. And I hope that those are made in the context of also what is good for others, because that's what this is for. Like most of us, luckily, statistically speaking, are going to get this virus and be sick and then recover and probably be okay. Another percentage of us will get it and not fully recover ever or recover with some lifelong problems. Some people are already, tens of thousands of people in this country have died. So this is not just for us, but ultimately when we, or you as a family, people who are listening are making a decision, they're going, it's a ton of decisions. It's not a decision, first of all, it's a ton of small decisions. And those are going to have to be made with an awareness of what risks you your student and the rest of your family are able to take on and willing to take on. Um, And in the context of like, I know I was kind of jokingly talking about like, I need my kid to go back to school. Um, I just read something the other day by a woman named Emily Oster um, who does work or a lot of her work is around childbirth and parenting. Um, And she's very into data, like examining these things from a statistical perspective. And she has been writing about, our current reality um, and wrote a piece about how you decide when daycare, if you have young children, when daycare reopens, how do you decide if you're going to send them back or not? And how do you decide if it's safe to see the grandparents or not? And the reason I appreciated the piece was she started off by saying, this article cannot be what you want it to be because everyone reading this wants me to say to them, do this. This is okay. This is not okay. I cannot do that for you. I can give you a framework because what you need is to understand what question you're asking and you need to understand the parameters within like which you're making your decision. And I think that's a really important thing for families listening to this to think about is like, what is the question? What is the goal? Um, When do you need to know this? Do you need to make the decision today? Can you wait two weeks? Because as Michael said at the top of this episode, things are changing rapidly all around us. Um, And we don't know Schools are still making decisions. We don't know when everyone's going to say. Um, And I think that's another part of this that makes it 
is so difficult is the moving parts in this are nuts. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it is. And, yeah. and I think, you know, before we go into the break, I want to, I want to make my editorial comment when I talk to so parents and they're like, Hey, you know what? I really need these people to make a decision. Well, guess what? It's really hard. There's a creditors, there's a mm-hmm. course progression. There are things you have to make sure that, okay, if we're going to do this, we got to line it up and make sure that our creditors are okay with this move. We can't just work in a vacuum. Um, there's, there's a lot going on. Plus who's your governor and what are they saying? You, you know, there's, there's some college presidents out there, Liberty University, who feel that they can just do whatever the hell they want, despite the fact that there's some public health problem going on. Okay. There, you are not the end all be all college president. Okay. And a college president cannot do that. And now, but now the parents who feel that they live in a consumer society and are like, I need a decision right now. That's not it. Okay. And, and know that a decision might be made right now. A decision could be made right now. And then in August, it could change depending on what happens. Like there's, and and we gotta be ready for that. Yeah. And this decision to send everyone home from campus in March happened extremely quickly. And the hope is the next time, if there is a next time that we have to change things that it won't be so abrupt, but yeah, there's a lot out there that we don't control. Yeah. Then the campuses have learned from that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to go back to Michael and we're going to talk about how management of uh, the COVID-19 has been interesting on his end, what he's learned from how people are learning on their own. So uh, we'll be right back. Twin XL is supported by Sunstein, Kahn, Murphy & Timbers, a boutique law firm specializing in intellectual property. Sunstein's attorneys are passionate representatives of their clients' ideas, technologies, and brands. And Sunstein's broad range of expertise in the intellectual property field, including patent and trademark litigation, sets it apart from the competition. Visit Sunstein at sunsteinlaw.com. That's S-U-N-S-T-E-I-N-Law.com. Contact Sunstein to see how your intellectual property can be winning intellectual property. Okay, we are back. And uh, we are talking with our guest, Michael Horn. And I have a question for you, Michael. Um, as we start to think about, so we've talked a lot about already about like how hard the decisions are for everyone in this situation, trying to figure out what's the fall going to look like? What are families going to want to do? What do students want out of their fall semester? Can you talk about if there are some ways that institutions can be innovative in the management of this um, that might even have some long-term impacts about how education looks when this all kind of transitions out of this current reality into whatever is coming next? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think institutions, you know, it's easy for us to say now in hindsight, right? But we know that there's large institutions that do online learning extraordinarily well. And then there's, it we, turns out a lot of institutions were totally not prepared for the transition, despite that did a remarkable job, I would say, in moving quickly, but it's not been an experience anyone wants to continue. Uh, I, I guess my takeaway is that I actually think that there are enormous opportunities to leverage online learning in hybrid in hybrid ways to create a very different uh, campus experience actually out of this. Meaning if you look at a place like the Minerva Institute, which is a rather new liberal arts college uh, headquartered in San Francisco, students actually, they, they live together in their cohorts 
but the learning experience, the seminars are actually all online, which enables their faculty to do some amazing things in terms of creating a very active learning environment. And actually, after we do this podcast, I'm going to jump into their forum to uh, experience it myself uh, for the first time. Uh, but cool. it's it's from from when you re read it and the, and the research on it, it's an incredibly active, engaged experience for the students in there. And then they exit the classroom and they get to, you know, do things as a community together, right? They'd get to do projects in their community. They get to uh, invest in helping uh, uh, volunteer in the community and, and, and live together and do have the college experience and so forth. And an agile environment like that, not only does it enhance the teaching and learning, it also then uh, enables them to move rather quickly when a pandemic hits or you know any other number of things to be more resilient as an institution. And so I guess what I hope I see out of this is institutions saying, how do we take little kernels from this and not just make a disaster preparedness plan out of this, but actually make our campus hardier and better than it was, not in ways that add cost, uh, so that parents have to foot the bill for it, but in ways that actually add to the value and experience for the students. I'll give you one other example because we we had that you know the big conversation about the gap year and so forth. Again, from my reading, all these freshmen in a normal times have been showing up on campuses, and you know some great percentage of them. I don't know how much, but some great percentage of them have not truly known why the, they're there. Why couldn't colleges create much more experiential learning opportunities on the front end, uh, you know, so that you can uh, be solving problems in a range of industries and applications to figure out what do I like and not like and give myself some purpose for the rest of the academic experience. Don't just sort of fall back on, okay, we're going to do our gen ed courses, we're going to have our big lectures, then you'll pick a major and so forth. It's not working already for a lot of students. Why not use this opportunity when, when we have to think differently about what this experience is going to look like, particularly if it's online, to then actually shift the actual operations in the long run? I think that's uh, great. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about, uh, it, the media has been killing the game in terms of or not killing the game, but beating us over the head with this idea of online, online, online learning. And it's like, actually, we're working remote. We're not we're we're not yeah. moving everything online. And the institutions that have moved online are actually being able to be more nimble. There has been a lot of discussion about how some small colleges, especially ones that are very high touch that have, have struggled in some ways because this is just not there. I mean, I've heard from colleagues as well as people who have our parents of children in college uh, who said they're, their instructors don't even know how to use their online system. They don't know how to use Blackboard or Canvas or whatever their their, their proprietary system might be in terms of delivering content. Um, and in that short window of time, they had to move everything uh, into this remote environment and something struggled. Um, but I've also heard from people uh, who are teaching things that uh, are, you would think, very difficult to teach online, like music and uh, vo vocal uh, coaching and things like that said, you know what, we've, we've figured it out. It's, you know, it's important. We were joking before we started about new microphones and, you know, making sure you've got the right technology to make it work. But uh, for some of those folks, it's good. Uh, there was an article yesterday in Slate and not an article, it was a column uh, by Rebecca Schumer. Um, and she said that she was very pointed and we're going to have the links to all of this in the show notes for folks. Uh, but 
I thought it was interesting. Moving college online is safe, but it's suboptimal. When spring 2020 courses hastily retreated to cyberspace, this emergency measure was met with a resounding chorus of affronted yowls from students and professors alike. Instructors who had never held a class online, many of whom vehemently opposed the practice, suddenly found themselves Zooming lectures to glazed over anxious students with their homeschooled children wreaking havoc in the background. Some institutions went past fails, others didn't. Uh, nobody knew what they were doing. Everyone had to do it anyway, and it was and continues to be not great. So that was her, that was one of the statements. Uh, for parents, Michael, for parents who are concerned about the value of remote learning that their students may continue to experience, what, what would you tell them? Yeah, I'd break it out a little bit and say, you know, in terms of just the course experience itself, it's actually very possible to do remote learning extraordinarily well. Like there's some great, you know, I mentioned Minerva with the online experience, Western Governors University, that's an affordable experience, does a really good job of this. There, it's, it's, I, I would argue it's actually possible to create online environments that are better in certain ways than the traditional class environment that that a traditional college student will sit through. I'm, I'm looking at Beth because I think you're at Olin College, right? And so I'm, I'm not talking about that experience, um, <laughs> right, when, when, when I just made that statement. But it's it's actually possible to use the online modality to do some really cool things that reinvent it. But I think what people and, and columns like that are missing is – the course experience of someone who's chosen to have a residential college experience is a part of the college experience. And it's not necessarily the part where they're going to learn the most, right? It's the environment of being with other students, those late night conversations you have. Yes, the parties, the opportunities to interact with faculty, to stop by office hours, to engage with alumni who come to speak on campus and other guest speakers. I mean, colleges are are just fountains of activity that are really neat that go well beyond the class experience. And in my mind, it's more like people who are clamoring for discounts and the like, I, I think they're right to hope for it and, and, and fight for it. Um, particularly going forward. I, I'm, I'm not so sympathetic, honestly, in the spring and the lawsuits I think have not been the right way to go. Um, but the, but you know, for next year, I think if it's online, they should absolutely look for some price discounting, but it's not just, it's not because of the course experience per se, right? It's because you're missing all these other things that you have opted mm -hmm. into. And if I choose an online college, if I choose to go to Southern New Hampshire University, which has a wonderful online experience, it's also a fraction of the cost <laughs> of what a residential brick and mortar experience is. And so that's sort of the trade-off that I think you know, people uh, sh should be thinking about as, as they make these decisions. And if it's going to be online anyway, you know, then and you really want to get started on your education, then maybe look for a more affordable option that 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 will fit within that and, and try to weigh those trade offs. And I guess, you know, Beth, you made a statement earlier that I thought was right on, which is, Experts right now can give you frameworks and ways of thinking through decisions. We cannot give you the answers. Your values, your mm -hmm. circumstances, your own. Everyone is sitting in a different place on this. And the best we can do is give you these frameworks that help you understand what the trade-offs are and figure out which trade-offs you're going to make in your circumstance. And then the, the last thing I would just say is we have this phrase uh, that I don't generally say publicly, um, uh, 
but in, in the research that we did for choosing college and so forth, it's uh, bitching ain't switching um, is what we say. So <laughs> people love to bitch about, you know, whatever they're doing right now. Like I'm not going to do X, never again, blah, blah, blah. Until you've actually switched and said, I'm actually not doing that. It kind of doesn't mean anything. It's just noise. And so that's, that's mm. the other thing I would say is there's going to be a lot of noise. We're actually not going to know what the reality is of for parents of like which students are going to come back, what the experience is going to be look like, is college actually going to happen, you know, on the campus in the fall? Will your, uh, will your child have only themselves as a roommate because they're not allowed to live with anyone else? Like all these questions, we're actually really not going to know um, until we, we get to that moment. And there's going to be a lot of noise until then. And I think that yeah, I actually really appreciate that last part because I think this is special message to the parents, especially of returning college students, because I think the incoming students, they have a they have an idea of what they are excited about to to for, about this new experience at college. But the students who are returning to sophomore, junior, senior year or beyond, they already know what being on campus was like. And I think the thing that some have not really come to grips with yet is that if being on campus in person happens in the fall or even when it happens in the spring if it does it's not going to be the same and I don't know what mm -hmm. it's going to be like yet um, no. because we talked about before there are all these moving parts and external factors that are going to shift what it has to be like but I think that there is a nostalgia for and a desire for a reality that is not going to return soon and may not ever yeah. return. And I don't say that to be a fatalist or be depressing. Um, it's no, just, but it's just real. I think, I yeah, mean, it's it, just you know, real. It's just like even, you know, Purdue, which was one of the first universities to say, we're going to be on in the fall, but the experience is going to look very different. They're going to try to physically distance people. They're going to try to make sure that vulnerable staff members and faculty members aren't having those interactions. There's going to be lots of testing. Yeah. That's a, I mean, the logistics involved in that, by itself are going to alter the experience. Right. And people just right. need to be aware of that. And that's, and I think that moving forward, the other thing that's going to make this so much harder for even the small institutions, like I was looking at what some of these institutions are trying to do, and they're coming up with three or four different modalities in terms of how things are going to look moving forward. And I know for a fact that these institutions, especially the small ones, and especially the ones that are already in a financial, you know, not in a great spot financially um, is that they don't have a lot of staff. They don't have the opportunity to say, okay, well, we have 15 people in the registrar's office and knowing that we're going to do, here's a hybrid version of our life. Here's an online version of our life. Here is an in-person version of our life. And what's that going to look like? Those two people working in the registrar's office are going to be working 24 seven to yeah, try to make all of this work. And I don't, I don't see how it's it's going to be healthy for those environments. Yeah, and you know, families ought to be thinking about that as well, right? In terms of the school that you choose. Yeah. Uh, to your point, and you know this very well, Laura. Some of these schools are yes, teetering right on the brink and yeah. have very shaky finances to begin with. So there's sort of two considerations there. One, am I going to a school that has the resources? to deliver on what they're promising or have the variety of robust uh, scenario planning necessary. And, and that means not just dreaming up the scenarios, but actually mm -hmm. executing on them. Uh, and then second, there is a very real conversation. Uh, is the school that I'm thinking my child's going to be able to go to 
will it be open in the fall? Not, and, and I don't mm-hmm. mean like physically open, like will, will the actual college shut down like we've seen you know, the Mount Ida's of the world, Pine Manor just announcing it's merging mm-hmm. with Boston College and, you know, New England's obviously That's an acquisition, Michael, and that's a different acquisition. <laughs> Right, but they're, they're not going to, but, but, but accepting yes. students, right? All of a sudden, no. right. the experience right. is different. And so it's not to say that, uh, it, it, it's, it's not to say that this is black and white. It's not. But the point is what you think you're going into might be very different. And, and that's something... You know, there's some lists out there you can consult, but mm-hmm. you're, again, you, you, there's right. there's values and trade-offs you're going to have to make there. And one of the things, you know, to maybe end on a higher note, uh, because yeah, you know it. we can't we can't do that. But but I think what I'm hoping comes out of all of this is that institutions actually start to going back to one of the things you said earlier about let's see who's who's moving their deposit date and who's doing this and who's doing that. That's one of the worst things that colleges and universities do. I mean, we do it for a reason. College universities do it for a reason and know what they're up against and know who they're competing against. But I'd love to see people. I, you know, Beth's heard me say this before, and I, I wrote something about this in Medium about the, the we've created a Simon Mallization of higher education. You know, if you don't have a rock climbing wall, a lazy river, and fifteen Starbucks on campus, you're not you're not a place that I want to go. Um, and I'd rather see this as maybe an opportunity for each institution to say, who are we? Let's go back to our mission. Let's go back to our vision. Let's go back to our values and say, all right, how can we do this? How can we define ourselves against all of higher education? We're going to still do our jobs. And maybe we live. And the other thing is we need to be mindful of who we are and where we're located. If, If I'm a New England school, and I know that from November until January, we're going to get hit with snow. We're going to get hit with all these other things that are going to push our resources to the brink. Get these kids off campus. I don't I don't begrudge colleges and universities saying, you know what? We're going to have you come back a little bit earlier. Come Thanksgiving, pick up your stuff and go home. And that go home may actually mean move all your stuff home because now they're learning because uh, as a colleague of mine who's at Boston University said the other day, we have 7,500 students who left stuff behind. That's a lot of shit. And now you've got to get it all home and now you've got to deal with all of that. All right. They've learned from that. So if a school comes back and has a new policy about something, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. But my point is, my hope is that maybe that what happens from this is we start to become more entrepreneurial, we become more forward thinking, we become more individual of our institutions, and maybe, just maybe, U.S. higher education is going to find a new dawn in the next coming years because we've learned from this and are able to deliver better education, maybe lower costs. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make any predictions there but maybe lower costs and maybe actually uh, increase access for folks who really could use it and have be more nimble. So, uh, you know, higher education amen. is not known for nimble. <laughs> no, but a- a- amen to that. I think schools should be true to who they are and not try to be everyone uh, else and not, and, and not try to be one size fits all. I think that would be easier for parents also because they could pick better. And then you said something else that 
just for me, I think is incredibly important is try to find the opportunities in this to innovate both for the parents uh, and their children to find the experience that makes sense so that they can grow as a person. And remember that life is long. You know, you don't have to sprint somewhere. You've got to instead continue to make uh, you know, invest in yourself and learn. And that's the magic of the journey, frankly. And so as we do so, let's all have empathy. Like we're all struggling in this moment right now. College administrators are people with kids at home themselves, and we're all trying to figure this out. Uh, and so be empathetic to the college and then look kinder upon those colleges that show you empathy in turn. I, I think that's a really important characteristic during all of this. Well, I can't think of a better way to go out on this. So my, thank you, Michael Horn. Everyone go out and buy his book, <laughs> Choosing College. Uh, we've also put some links in the show notes on how to find out more information on Michael. Uh, there's contact information in there and uh, some links to some of his last few uh, submissions in Forbes. So I'm going to turn it to Beth to take us out. All right, cool. This podcast, Twin XL, is a production of Pod 617. We want to thank our producer, Dave Yaz. Is I supposed to say you're welcome? You're welcome. You, you can. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's a virtual pleasure. It's an actual pleasure. Uh, and a virtual funny. pleasure. Thanks, guys. <laughs> oh, that was good. Uh, <laughs> so, if you would like to find us online, uh, we are on Facebook. You can search TwinXL on Facebook and find our page. You can find us on Twitter at TwinXLPod. You can send us an email at TwinXLPod at gmail.com. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash TwinXLPodcast. Um, and our guest was Michael Horn. Thank you, Michael. And as Laura mentioned, all kinds of information about Michael will be in our show notes. So um, you can find him there if you're interested. Thanks, everyone, for listening and stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Yeah. <laughs>